This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Well, hey there, everyone. It's Stormy Warren welcoming you on the bus at Country Thunder with executive producer Troy Volhofer. Coming to you from Music City, we can't wait to chat with all of our friends in country music. Get ready for real talk about the state of the music industry, thoughts and insights from some of its biggest stars, and more than a few backstage stories from the six annual Country Thunder events held all across North America. I know I'll be sharing some great stories in a future episode. So buckle up and get ready for your new favorite podcast. Here's Troy. We have a very special guest tonight. Um, I'm so happy to have her here. Um, She's been a friend of mine for a while and uh, a great participant of the Country Thunder uh, music festivals and has put on some amazing shows. Uh, I'd like to welcome Terry Clark. Hi, Troy. Hi, Terry. Thanks for having me. This is this is great. Uh, thanks for coming over. And and we're, I just got to mention this right off the top of the show. So uh, Terry and I we we uh, started our day out golfing this morning at a very early uh, time and. It was uh, interesting because it was cold here in Nashville this morning. And on the second hole, Terry Clark smoked a home run with a hole in one <laughs> done. Maybe <laughs> put a little uh, World Can Series into it. Can you believe that? <laughs> it was unbelievable. Oh, God. How did, that that, was... how did that feel? Well, you know, we you're standing there, Nick and, and Jim, and like I'm playing with three guys, and we're all standing there watching. You know, I hit my shot. This is over water. It's a par three, so it's not a super long hole. But I've left so many balls in the bottom of that thing, in that in that little man-made lake or whatever it is. And I'm like, oh, I'm just going to, you know, that's what's going to happen. So lob it over and it hits the hill and rolls down the hill right into the We just watched it slowly. We just watched it happen. And then I think we were all in shock. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> and then it was like, oh my God, it's a hole in one. Oh, it was a celebration. It was a lot of fun. It was the coolest thing I've seen in golf. And uh, <laughs> to be part of it, to sit there, I actually heard the clink because I had put mine in the water. So I was, uh, I, was on the, I was right there by the green, actually. Um, 
It was an amazing opportunity to be there for that amazing sports uh, moment. And Terry Clark, you are quite a golfer, I'm telling you. Oh, no, I'm not. Yes, you, you, are. You, you keep telling me I have a good golf swing, but I, I've never witnessed it, cause, but, but I'm sure it's, it's pretty loose. As so we golfed a couple weeks ago. Yeah. And uh, so Terry has this great country club that she's a member at that uh, uh, I'm honored to be a guest with Terry. And uh, we go out and play it. And we have another celebrity who's playing with us. And we'll leave that name uh, unannounced right now. But uh, Terry has a very sexy swing. Like when she swings, she has a very <laughs> sexy swing. You're the only person who has ever <laughs> told me that. Everybody says I'm loosey goosey. No, like, it, I look like I'm falling through, off a cliff after I'm done. <laughs> it's amazing. So she has this beautiful swing. Like, Terry, you have a very sexy swing. And uh, the other celebrity goes, well, Troy, don't I have a sexy swing? I'm like, uh, no, I don't know. I think it's great, but you know. Sexy swing. Oh, I used to dance under that name. <laughs> Speaking of that. Speaking of sexy swing. Tell us about Playboy Calling. Oh God, you I, yeah. I need yeah. to hear about oh, that. I've God. never I was I was just doing a little research on background. You, you know. didn't know about this, did I you? I had no idea. You never told me about it. all the times <laughs> that we've hung out, you've never ever told I me. I usually about lead it. with it. I'm surprised. <laughs> 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 no, uh back uh, I wanna say this was early two thousands, I guess. Playboy ran a poll on online and they wanted to know who people thought who who people wanted to see in their magazine more. Me or Shania Twain, or uh, no? Actually, I think it was. I think it was actually like ten country singers, and I was one of the names. And Shania Twain and I came in one and two. I came in at one. She came in at two. So they called and offered me a deal to pose in the magazine uh, for a monetary value of a substantial amount, and and also, you know, it was so damn funny because my manager. Um, who is still my manager to this day, was doing all this research on, you know, Playboy shoots and Playboy, you know, what they were offering certain amounts of money for certain amounts of, you know, unveiling of certain body parts and stuff. And so he's researching what this looks like, what that looks like. And he's got all these Playboy magazines all over the floor of his office. <laughs> and his intern who just started the day before comes in. To give him a phone message and sees all these playboys. She's like, who the hell am I working for? <laughs> Clarence Balding, the yeah. porn king. <laughs> yeah, porn exactly. king. Uh, but anyway, no, I ended up turning it down and they offered me the cover at, at one point. It got that far. and But I, I, I've always tried to represent strength in women and what's between your ears matters more than what's between everywhere else. And I've I've had so many letters from young girls in school who felt who were in the 4H club or you know loved country music who felt like misfits or didn't they didn't or tomboys or just didn't feel like the rest of the girls and said to me you know you were an inspiration and you inspired me to be myself and I wasn't embarrassed to wear my cowboy hat to school and I finally felt like somebody I could identify with was out there and I was not about to just take a giant eraser and make all of that go away by doing that and also the Opry was very important to me and I had my sights on being an Opry member someday. And I honestly don't know that I'd be sitting here uh, and be a, a Grand Ole Opry member had I followed through with that. And you know what? Money is, money's fun and we all like it and it's great, but it's not everything. I think you're in, your integrity and having to sleep at night. And I was also having these visions, of, you know, I get, I get some weird shit happens in meet and greets, right? I can just imagine how weird it would have been for the rest of my life. 
Like seriously, the the creeps just showing up with this nude that, photo of me to sign forever. You'd been signing that uh, February issue for the rest I'd of be your signing life. Signing my right? my own boobs for the rest of my life. Oh, I think Not you made a great decision. Well, thank you. Um, because you know what the key to it all is that they offered that to you, and that's a real honor in its own right. And you should be very it's, proud. Of I that. think it's got it's a magazine of a lot of integrity. They have great articles. They cover a lot of wonderful things. That um, great journalism and writers and. I just, you know, didn't, I didn't want to, I didn't want to become about that. I don't ever want to become about anything. I don't want to wear anything like that. I'm a country music singer. I love to bring joy to people, make people happy, tell my stupid jokes on stage, bring people together in, in almost a fellowship sort of situation. And I, it makes me so sad right now with COVID that people need that more than ever. And we're not able to do that. And, and I feel like it's a calling that I'm not and all of us are not able to fulfill because we're we're not allowed to do that right now, and they need it now. So, so um, you know, I've had a couple of conversations with a couple of comedians, and they're concerned about getting their timing back, and and uh, which is you know very important for a comedian. How do you feel as an artist uh, this time down? Have you been rehearsing? Have you been <laughs> in your in your in your bathroom uh, shower singing to yourself, or how are you preparing yourself when, when we eventually get back out? Which which I feel will be sooner than later, and I think right now we're going through a really bad spot, um, but I believe that I think that uh, the future is bright for us. Your lips to God's ears, and I, I believe that too, and I think we all have to have faith that things will return to normal. Um, I I'm. I didn't sing a lot over the summer until I like, you know, we're all doing these, these, to be quite honest, I think the online stuff is great, but it, it can get long in the tooth for people. And it's like, we just want to, we just want to go feel the kick drum and the bass in our gut as we're standing in the audience or as we're standing on stage, we want the camaraderie, the bus hang, the, the joy of being around each other as a band and crew and creating and making people happy. It's just like having a one-sided conversation when you're sitting there in front of your phone with a ring light and a friggin' thing and on a tripod, it's just not the same. So we all want to get back and, you know, doing that is great, but it's never, it's just not, it's not the same. So, um, I have been doing some of that, not as much as a lot of other artists have. I think I just, I feel like I want to take the time that I've been given to actually stop for a minute because I, I haven't stopped touring for 25 years. I've been on the road living out of a suitcase since 1995. I mean, you're, you're older than 30? Yeah, <laughs> quite a bit. You don't look a day over 30. <laughs> quite a bit older than 30. Um, I guess going back is something that I like to do with uh, in this discussion because you're an inspiration to a lot of listeners who are aspiring artists and in Canada, especially because um, what we've seen with Canadian artists, if they don't get a U.S. record deal and they sign a Canadian deal, a lot of times they get pigeonholed in Canada and never get that opportunity in America on a major label in the U.S., hence no success in, in the U.S., which is very important to your overall success as an artist and longevity as an artist, as you can say that in your own career. What Tell me about how you made your, your pilgrimage to Nashville how it started, where you played, and uh, right to where we are today. Well, I I moved from uh, Calgary to Medicine Hat when my mom remarried when I was ten years old, and we we were she was a single mom with two young daughters, and 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 she married Peter Clark, and he was in the oil business, and he had a house in Medicine Hat that he had a bunch of roughnecks and tool pushes living in. Into renting out, and uh, he moved us into that house. And boy, the things I found after we moved in there. 
Can only buried underneath it. the stairwell. <laughs> Speaking of Playboy, um, <laughs> yeah, there were a few of those. So once I once we start we lived there for a while I started to really take music seriously my grandparents on my mom's side were musicians I supported five kids playing in bars um, and wow. playing country music in bars and my grandpa was a groundskeeper they worked really hard and didn't have a lot of money but they loved music so I grew up around guitars and now wasn't around. your grandfather also an aspiring artist yeah well they they actually made records my grandparents made records my grandmother was more the singer my grandpa played fiddle. Um, she played bass and snare and they had a group. He booked, he booked talent. He was an agent in Montreal. He had his own little, you know, for bookings call Ray. I've got his card, his business card. It was great. And, um, this was before pretty much I was born that all of that was happening. So I came from a musical family. And then when we were living in Medicine Hat, my mom finally got to quit working and got to be a stay at home mom for a while. And, um, I remember, one day walking into the living room and she had the Barbara Mandrell and the Mandrell sisters show on. And I just, I had already started playing guitar a little bit by then, but that just, that was like a changing of the guard for me. It just uh, sent me on this trajectory of wanting to know everything I could about country music beyond Barbara Mandrell. And then I got into Reba and the Judds and Ricky Skaggs and everything in the early to mid eighties just permeated every every fiber of my body and I just was like a sponge and wanted to to be like those people in the CMA awards I was obsessed with them watching them and just absolutely lived ate breathed and drank country music I was dedicated to it and I knew by the time I was 15 my mom and I kind of hatched a plan that I was going to move to Nashville now how or when or where or in in which way I had no idea what we thought we were going to do but that's the the beauty of a dream is that you just don't you don't think about the details. You just think about the end result, the big picture. This is what I'm going to do. So, you know, we dreamed together. I would bring my guitar upstairs when she was cooking dinner and I would sing and she'd kind of vocally coach me through some things and be like, you're going a little sharp here. Your mom was a singer also. My mom sang too. Yeah. Um, anyway, so uh, it's it's a bit of a long story how this happened, but I didn't have a green card. I had no way of getting into the States, but we knew we wanted to meet in Nashville when I was graduated high school. So I ended up moving to Michigan first to, yeah, my biological dad was married to an American at the time and they had a house in Michigan. And I thought, well, that's one way to kind of go into the States and sort of figure out how I can stay. So that's what we did. He was a long haul truck driver, put me in his truck, traveled across Canada into Michigan. And I just thought, okay, well, this is where I'm going to stay till I get to go to Nashville. And so the way into Nashville, we thought, was going to be through my native status in Canada because I was Métis. Yeah. So apparently there are rights that Métis have to get into the U.S., which I uh, thought, and my mom thought we were going to be able to, to kind of take advantage of, and that did not work out. So then I went to live with my grandparents in London, Ontario, so I could get a job and save some money to figure out how I was going to get to Nashville. Now, how old were you at this time? Eight, 18. Wow. And um, so a family friend of my mom's, Pat, who has known me since I was born, she was living in Toronto at the time, and she's, she should be a TV character. She's just, she weighs 90 pounds, and she's five foot one. Uh, smoker smokes everything and she <laughs> she comes she comes to my grandparents house you know and she says uh 
she said she called my mom. She came to visit me at my grandparents' house. And she, I was working a job at that time in a cafeteria below the Bell Building and the cashier girl as people were buying muffins and stuff like that on their lunch break. Anyway, she, she comes to visit me at my grandparents and she calls my mom and she goes, Linda, she's depressed. Uh, she said her grandmother is, is feeding her to death. <laughs> Cause my grandmother, no, I'm not hungry. No, here you go. One of the, you know, the, one of those things. And she said, you got to get her to Nashville. She's just dying here. She's dying to go get a plane ticket, come out here and we will drive her down. So that's what they did. Packed a Honda Civic full of everything I owned. I can't believe everything I owned fit in a Honda Civic. And me in the back seat with my guitar beside me and clothes everywhere. And we crossed the border and the customs guy's like, where are you ladies going? And I said, the Grand Ole Opry. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't know I had no intention of coming back or they wouldn't have let us cross. But um, so they took me down to Nashville and I had no idea how I was going to make two ends meet. I had to find something to work for cash because I couldn't work legally. I had to lie about where I was from so I didn't get deported. I was 2,500 miles from home. My mom and Pat stayed for a week. We found a, a place for me to rent with a room with uh, with this woman who had a three-year-old son. She worked, did shift work. So I was looking after her three-year-old son at night while she went to work. And um, before my mom and Pat left, we w- did a little touristy thing and went to the Grand Ole Opry and watched a show there. Then we went down to Lower Broadway and I had read every book on the history of country music, every autobiography and everything at that point. So I wanted to go into Tootsie's Orchid Lounge. So we went into Tootsie's Orchid Lounge and there was nobody there, just a guy on stage singing. Now this is 1987. It was a war zone down there. Oh, Drugs, it was peep shows, adult theaters like yeah i was here i was here in 92 playing hockey and it was yeah and it was even getting better then but in the 80s it had been forgotten there were blood stains on the sidewalk a lot of drug trafficking and prostitution and so we walked in and and nobody was there and and my mom and pat were pushing me to ask the guy if i could get up and sit in so uh he let me sit in and i finished the set for him he had a full tip jar people had started coming in because the door was open I played into the next guy's set and they offered me a job to play for tips down there. And, you know, meanwhile, I'm up there playing and all of these locals knowing that this is my mom are just, they're kind of the characters living out of their cars and trying to make it. And, and they see this, you know, doe eyed, fresh faced, green, wet behind the ears, Canadian girl with this voice coming in and sitting down. They're all just like, so they said to my mom, they said, oh, she's great. You know, we can help her. I can help her. I'm like, you're living in your car. What are you going to do to help me? (laughs) And, uh, but they told my mom that not to let me come and play down there after dark or they'd find me in a dumpster in the back alley. They they were warning her that it was dangerous down there. Yeah, it was a tough town at that time. So that's, that's, that was my start. And I would have to take the city bus from the end of Nolensville and Bell Road all the way to Tootsie's every day that I played there with my guitar because I didn't have a car. You need a license to have a car in Tennessee, and it's not that easy to just get a license when you're illegally. So you lived in Antioch. <laughs> I lived, yeah, in Tusculum. And actually. so did I. You did? Absolutely. Oh my my, that was my first stop yeah. here in, in Nashville, too. Was it culture shock for you? Like, I mean, when you, when you, not culture, just like the food's so different and the, and, and the, and the temperature. I mean, I thought it was melting all the time. It was so hot. Yeah. I found the South, um, very alluring to me. I I found it um, exactly, it was very attractive in the sense Mm -hmm. that 
it had everything that I wanted. I mean, it had warm weather. It was, uh, the people are beautiful people. And Nashville had a lot of grit and character. I mean, if you, I mean, we, it was, I mean, that's a, that's a sexy way of saying it, but mm-hmm. I, I mean, I found it, uh, very interesting. And, and it was that, it was those, you know, 40 year old guys who've been trying to get a record deal, still playing those honky tonks and the honky tonks weren't tourist driven honky tonks. They were more like, yeah. you know, and, and trying to figure out, I mean, I remember Skull, Skull was a friend of mine yeah, Skull, and Skull. Uh, Skull Sherman and, uh, and the guys would come in there. I mean, Paul McCartney played in Skulls, and mm-hmm. Tim McGraw started out mm-hmm. in Skulls, and you started out in Tootsies. I mean, mm-hmm. but that that doesn't happen anymore so much down on you know on the row and uh, on Broadway. What what are your thoughts on that and the transition of artists? I mean, there are there are a lot of great talents down. There's a lot of guys that sing better than a lot of guys with record deals. But what are your thoughts of of, of getting your record deal? Now, how did you get your record deal? Because you run a U.S. label from day one, and and how did that come to how did that come to fruition? Well, that was that was a long a long haul too. It was eight years before I got that record deal. I'd been here eight years, and I, uh, you know, I eventually wound up becoming legal. I met I met somebody. Uh, we got married. Um, I fell in love. My first boyfriend. I married my first boyfriend, and I was crazy about him. I really was. And we wound up getting married. And part of it was because we were so broke that I needed to be able to work too. Like we were having trouble like making ends meet. So after I got legal, um, I was able to wait tables and I sold cowboy boots and I sold cowboy boots to Reba McIntyre and Johnny Cash and some amazing things happened. Uh, and, but I was a sales girl. I wanted them to know me as an artist. I'm like, yeah, I'm selling you a pair of cowboy boots, but someday you're going to know who I am. You know, that was kind of what I thought when I, sure. especially when I met Reba and five years later I was on tour with her. That's, that's how that happened. It was pretty cool. But, you know, it, it um, now I, I find Nashville has transitioned so tremendously from that to, and, and one of the best restaurants you could, you could go and eat at was very, well, they were very few and far between. And now it's, you know, 500 restaurants and all these, it's become, it's become urban and a city. And it's not just, you know, it's not just gift shops with cloth mice on broomstick handles and mugs and buttons with, like it was when, and fanfare's changed. It's become CMA Fest. Like when you look at the way fanfare has evolved, that pretty much in a nutshell will tell you what has happened in Nashville. You go fanfare at the fairgrounds in these hot, sweaty buildings to, which I felt I loved. I loved the charm of that to CMA Fest at the stadium in a football stadium. We have a football team. It's just. Yes. Uh, and downtown, lower Broadway, the venues, the talent, the venues pay for real now. I was making $15 a day plus tips. And you lived off the tip jar, right? I lived on about $130 a week when I moved here. They're paying people way more than that just a night, you know, to go play down there. And I, and I just think there's, there's just a lot of, there are a lot, there's a lot more going on down there now. And, and there are a lot of really great singers down there. There, it, it wasn't quite, the talent pool wasn't quite what it is now. When I was down there, I, I, I just think it was a different time. And, uh, country wasn't as popular as, as it is now. Well, you were part of that. I mean, you were part of that regime of artists who punched through and took country to where it is today. And, uh, you know, you take yourself and I mean, uh, Randy Travis, who was a pre, I mean, he was before you were mm-hmm. obviously in, in Alabama, but that was the start mm-hmm. and 
and the late 80s, early 90s scene really took country music to a different level. Yeah. And all of a sudden, they're out with four or five trucks of production, and there's three artists that are packaged together mm-hmm. and selling, you know, selling 5,000, 6,000 tickets a night in hockey rinks. Mm-hmm. Um, a total different scenario than from you know, the 70s into the 80s where everyone was playing you know, soft seat theaters pretty yeah. much. You know, and you're part of that. It was, well, you should be very proud of that. Thank you. I, I, uh, I think taking that risk and that leap early on, and I think when you're 18, you, you, you process things differently than you do when you're 40. I think, um, not alluding that I'm 40, but if you want to believe that, that's great. But if, I but I 39. think, yeah, yeah, I like you, but you know, I think, I think that there's a, there's a risk taking factor there. There's a invincibility that you feel, or I'll figure it out when you're younger, you don't know enough to get, be scared. Right. You're just so innocent. And my mom is, has always been a dreamer and gone after everything she wanted. So between the two of us, we weren't going to let anything stand in our way. And, you know, it, it was eight years before I got a record deal from the time I set foot in Nashville till 1994 when I went into Mercury Records, which that all happened between me playing at Tootsie's, waiting tables, selling boots. It was a, a matter of, uh, you know, just the right opportunity to come along. I got turned down by every label, some of them twice. I had made a couple of really good demo demo type master recordings with a couple of people in town, Brian Kennedy mm-hmm. being one of them. And um, that demo floated around town for three years before it made it into the hands of wow. Keith Stiegel, who called me in to sing for him. Um, I was promised a, a, another deal kind of at Sony and that fell through. It was a heartbreaking time. And so uh, Keith called me and said, you know, we bring your guitar in. I've heard this demo and, uh, I had a, a manager I was working with sort of at the time. There was nothing to really work with. We were waiting for something to happen. Woody Bowles. And we went in, sang for Keith Stegall. And he said, man, I, I'm just blown away. And I want, I really would like to do something with you, but I can't do anything right now. I've got other things going on. And I thought, well, that's kind of the, I don't, didn't really know what to think of that. And we left. And six months later, got a call from Keith saying he was going to Mercury Records as the head of A&R. And that he wanted me to come and sing for the president of the label, Luke Lewis. So brought my guitar in six months. And I thought he had completely forgotten about me. I didn't hear a word. We didn't hear anything from him for six months, but he didn't forget. And I went in and sang for the, and that's how the record deal happened. But it was a long succession of heartbreaks, promises, broken, um, uh, just a lot of slamming doors. But I think as long as you've got a carrot dangling in front of you, which I always had, there was always a door opening when one was closing. I just never for a minute wanted to believe that that it wasn't going to happen. So I just kept moving forward till it did. Oh, that's amazing because, you know, for all your you know aspiring artists who are out there who are, you know, trying to get a record deal or, you know, just keep playing music, it, it, it's inspirational to hear that story. And, and you hear that story from so many artists, you know, who have record deals and had major successes that... You know, the door had been slammed in their face. They've been rejected multiple times. I know Taylor Swift went through the whole process, you know, uh, turned down by every major label. I know Garth had done that. I mean, it's it's pretty interesting to hear of yourself and artists of that magnitude who are now successful, who if they would have quit after the first no, they would never yeah. have got to that to that um, pinnacle of their Oh, career. absolutely. To, to me, I think that the hardest part for me was just making the move that 2,500 mile trek between Medicine Hat and Nashville and um, being brave enough to do that and 
my mom and Pat leaving me after a week and a half because I had a babysitting job and it was, I'll never forget my mom pulling away. And it, I found out just last year that she didn't speak to Pat for a year. Wow. Because it was Pat's idea that, and after the guys in Tootsie's had been telling her that how dangerous it was yeah. and they'd already offered me the job, what's she going to say? Yeah. No, you can't play down here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was just so excited. So how did, <laughs> yeah. how did the hat come about as part of your image? And I mean, it's a big part of your image. I mean, it's Terry Clark. Well, I, I played a lot of local gigs in Medicine Hat. I wore a hat once in a while, um, but I always dre- dressed very Western and adopted like it, it was, I was a country singer. So that's what I wanted to be and look like. And I got teased at school and told, you know, called Cow Patty and asked where my horse was parked and all kinds of stuff like that. And, um, when I started to work in Nashville at a Western wear apparel store, boot, it was called boot country. Same guy who owned boot country also owned Cowtown boots and hired Garth Brooks about five years before he hired me. And, uh, I told him when I went in to interview for the job, I said, you know, this is just kind of, I'm, I, I want to work here, but I'm trying to get a record deal. So that's my real reason for being in town. He said, well, I'd, I'd look at you and tell you that, you know, so does does everybody wants a record deal in this town. But the last guy who said that to me was Garth Brooks. So, I, and then lo and behold, I go and get a record deal. He's, he's like, he's become the, I think that Ed Smith should have been like the American Idol. He, he was the first American Idol. You get hired by Ed Smith, you're going to, you're going to do great things. You're going to bless my good luck at that point. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. So, uh, but when I was working at this boot store, I, I wore a hat and uh, sort of started feeling really comfortable dressing the part for the job and Brian Kennedy who produced the demo on me that ultimately got me my record deal or my audition with Mercury told me at the time. And he, he was very good friends with Garth. Garth was just, didn't even have his first single out um, when I first met Brian, but Brian said, you know, these guys are, there's Clint Black and Alan Jackson and Mark Chestnut and there's Garth and there's like you name all the acts in the in the late 80s early 90s that were wearing cowboy hats and he said not one woman has broken through doing that yet you have a golden opportunity if you're comfortable and this is who you are anyway you should talk to, you know and you look great in it so why wouldn't you make that because it wasn't what women weren't doing that right. and I so I thought you know I'm gonna I'm going to try that. I, I, the label planned a photo shoot for the first album before we even had music ready. And I wore, I took the hat to the photo shoot. We did half with the hat and half without the hat photos for the first album. And lo and behold, the, the photo that everybody was unanimous about was the one that wound up on the first album cover. So after that, that was just all, yeah. the, that, that was all she wrote. And I still wear it and I feel comfortable. I, it has saved me so many hours in the hair chair and so, so much. I mean, I don't have to go to that the hairstylist as much for the dye job. I could just cover it up. It's awesome. <laughs> oh no, you look great in the hat. I was just curious because it is, it has become part of your persona and your stage persona and, and it's really cool because it's your own identity. It brings tears to my eyes to think about what it's going to feel like. I think artists are going to walk on stage. Some artists are just burst into tears because it's been so long and feeling that can, I know I will. I almost did. I did the Opry and there were like five people in the audience and it almost did it to me. Um, but 
I think fans, there's, there's going to be a, it's going to be like Christmas. You know how Christmas people are nicer and everybody just seems to have this respect for each other. And there's a, there's a joy in the air. Like you were saying, it's a magic. It's going to be magic. I think it's going to be magic. And there are going to be, I think people have taken things for granted in the past. They will not anymore. Like somebody who's, you know, I've, I've been wanting to come and see this artist for so long. I've been putting it off. I've been wanting to see you for so long. Don't put it off because you don't know when you're not going to get a chance to see that person. I've always told people if there's ever an artist that you're dying to see in person, in concert, don't put it off because something could you happen. You never know. Anything can happen. I had the same experience with, uh, I'm a circus fan and and uh, Ringling Brothers, Barnum and Bailey Circus came into Nashville and I was like, ah, I'll see them next year. Well, there wasn't a next year and it's gone and it was one of the greatest, you know, circus shows ever. And, you know, you, you never can say, I'll wait till next year because next you year can't. may never come. And, you, and especially in today's uh, environment. So it, it's pretty neat. Let's get it done and let's come yeah. out and see our artists and support our artists. Yeah. I mean, it's a, the live, the live performance is a very important part of an artist's livelihood. So you got to support the artists when they come to your town and uh, buy tickets to the events and uh, to support the community. Yeah, absolutely. There's There are so many artists that I feel horrible for right now, like artists that if, if I if I, did, I tried to imagine this happening to me during my sophomore project or on the second record or the first record and they haven't made their money yet, they haven't established themselves yet, they're still... and playing live and supporting a record is so important. And then all of a sudden they're told they've got to sit in front of their phone on, with a tripod and a ring light. Like that's not what they grew up dreaming about doing when their first album came out. My heart breaks for them, no matter who's getting, you know, and some of them are getting nominated for CMA awards and all of that. And that's great, but it's just not what you dream about happening. And it's not the same. And I just, I want to, I want to believe and I have to believe, and I think everybody is believing that it's going to come back bigger than it's ever been because people will have missed it so much. And I think, you know, as things get back to normal and we're two or three years from now, everyone's going to, everybody kind of falls back into their old ways and habits. But I think we're going to see a real surge of uh, passion for fairs and festivals and live music and concerts and stadiums and arenas and whatever, whatever it is you're doing. Um, you know, I, I've actually talked to people about, what are artists going to, if, if it's going to be that huge when it comes back, are we going to run out of buses to rent well, and lease and get, uh, you know. Well, Terry, that's start. ironic because, uh, to say that, because right now we're, we have a few slots open on a few festivals that are playing in the fall next year. And it's very difficult to find, you know, talent. Uh, th- the industry is looking like it's going to be a full comeback and everyone's going to be out on the road. So everybody's pretty much booked. So, it's it's very interesting to see that, um, and you're probably right. There'll be a lot of bus shortages and production shortages and whatever, which is a fantastic place to have when you know these vendors have been off the road for the last year, basically. Yeah, the bus companies the are in trouble. They're, they're, Absolutely. they're in a lot of trouble right now. I mean, there's so many buses parked in Nashville, yeah. Tennessee. I remember as a kid, when I'd see a bus come through Regina, I would just get like totally inspired. We are and, the same person. <laughs> It's like, oh my god! It's that's a amazing. tour bus. Oh Who's my in god. town? Oh, it's like the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> I know. I had a very similar experience to that. I was a, uh, 
I was, it was 1979. I was a kid, like just a 12 year old kid, I think at the time. And, and my mother and father were driving down the main street in Regina, which is my hometown. And there was this guy roller skating down the street and he had, uh, he had yellow and black, uh, overalls on and long blonde hair and drove past him. And it was David Lee Roth and it was going up to the holiday Inn, and there was four trucks of production sitting in there. I went, Van Halen staying at the Regina Holiday Inn, September 22nd, 1979. It was pretty amazing. Wow. Oh, that is so, so cool. But it does. It gives me the same, I get yeah. the same energy out of it. I mean, um, it's neat, you know, and, and we've been very blessed for both of us to be involved in this business because it's a special place to yeah, be. It, it really is. is. And I think we both are like little kids about it still. Like I still think about being a kid in Medicine Hat and getting up in the middle of the night to watch This Week in Country Music with Laurie and Crook and Charlie Chase at 2.30 in the morning it would air and I'd set my alarm, wake up, watch it, 30 minute uh, Reader's Digest version of everything that had happened in country music that week and then when I then I go back to sleep and get up for school and listen to the Barbara Mandrell show on my tape recorder that I taped by the TV speaker you know, wow. before going to school and um, you know, calling the local station to request Reba McIntyre. They knew me by my first name. I'd just say, can you play Reba McIntyre? Okay, Terry, we'll get to it. Was that chat? Chat. Yeah, chat radio. I, chat I, Medicine Hat. Yeah, I was the biggest nuisance to all the jocks there. And <laughs> they're like, this freaky little kid in Crescent Heights won't stop calling and asking for Reba McIntyre songs. <laughs> you know, they just... Uh, yeah, dreaming, dreaming and visualizing and wanting to be a part of something is what brought us both here and in this room together. So no, it is absolutely. And you know, we're going to wrap this up, but it's such an honor to have you participate in our shows. You're such a big part of it. I could wash my car in the rain, change my new guitar strings, mow the yard just the same as I did yesterday. Terry, I understand that you have uh, your own radio show right now on many networks across North America. And can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes, it's a, it's a Westwood One show called Country Gold with Terry Clark, and it's on 170 stations in the U.S. It's syndicated. It's on regular radio, not on satellite radio. But you can listen to it with a TuneIn app, or you can go to my website or Facebook and find out if it's on in your market. But it's on in a lot of markets, and it's also now starting to be distributed more in Canada. Some of the Stingray stations have picked it up. CFCW in Edmonton's playing it. It's on Saturdays at 2 there. So, you know, there, there are a lot of places. Uh, there are some places uh, out east that are starting to air the show, um, like Cape Breton and newfoundland and and um and some of the maritime so it's doing very well and it's been three years since i've i've started it and it's a 90s intensive radio show it's all i interview a lot of artists from the 90s we you know talk about stuff that we're talking about here on the bus you know just the good old days of what they're doing now and catching up with them so that's the premise of the show and it's a lot of music a lot of music from the 90s so what I've, uh, you know, as, as Country Thunder has seen, a lot of fans have requested, you know, artists from the 90s. I mean, we have a great mix of artists from the 90s into the current artists who are the biggest stars in country music, um, uh, you know, in present time. But the 90s have such a resurgence 
what do you attribute to that resurgence? Um, I think a lot of today's artists are giving uh, kudos to the artists of the 90s as being an influential era for, era for them. And a lot of the artists that they grew up listening to that made contributed to them wanting to do country music and be country music artists are people from our era. When you look at the the generation, you know, it's the the kids that are out there in their late twenties, early thirties, mid to late thirties, that they were teenagers when people like me and Tracy Lawrence and um, you know, whoever else from the nineties, all of us were, were having our hits in, at our greatest uh, height. So I think that I think that's part of it. Uh, I also think that there's there was a distinction in voices back then, such a stylistic tone difference in everybody, and I think and melody was different. Melodies were all different, and even if sometimes the hooks and the musical sonically it could sound the same, a lot of the same musicians were playing on every record then, and they still are. Yeah. Um, but. I think the voices had such a distinct difference between them. You knew Tracy Bird from Tracy Lawrence. You knew Mark Chestnut from Joe Diffie. You knew Alan Jackson from Clint Black from Garth Brooks. And you knew Trisha Yearwood from Jody Messina from Martina McBride to Faith Hill. Like everybody sounded different. Um, that is something that personally I find the biggest difference between music then and now is, and I don't know if, if some of what's going on with the way it's recorded, vocals are recorded and tuned with a certain thing that puts everybody kind of in this same sort of um, sonic space where it starts to sound the same. I think that's part of the reason why and not knocking it. I think there are some great music. I'm a big, I am a big fan of Thomas Rhett, Keith Urban, like there's some really great music being made. Um, Lauren Elena, Ashley McBride, you know, uh, that's probably what I like so much about Ashley is, the is roots. she, yeah, like just, you yeah. know, it's her. Uh, but I, I think that, that um, some of it does tend, tend to kind of sound the same. I have a, I have a quick story about Ashley McBride. So she was on the bus last summer at Country Thunder in Wisconsin. She came on the bus and it was the first time I met her and you know, it's a, hey, Ashley, it's a pleasure. Thank you for playing the show. And she's like, great. And she goes, do you got any whiskey? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I do. Say, how much whiskey did you have? Well, I pulled bus? out the wrong bottle. I pulled out a bottle of Crown Royal, which I didn't understand wasn't whiskey in her vocabulary. <laughs> so uh, immediately sent a runner out to get a bottle of Jack. And She and likes then, Elijah Craig, too. <laughs> and then everything was but all yeah, right. Yeah, so, yeah. No, it's, it's so neat uh, in regards to, you know, uh, how the... I would say genres in sense of time have, have melded together and the fan base today in country music fans are enjoying all aspects of country music mm -hmm. throughout the time periods. And it, it's a great thing. It's really positive for everything. Well, the fans are younger. Mm -hmm. uh, when, when I started out, uh, the, the average country fan was, I, I think it was 35 to 55 or something. Right, and, they had daughters your age. Yeah. And, and it, it, it was like, you know, I was, it was great, but I had people, you know, that came to my shows that were around my age then that were fans, but, and they've grown with me and I've, but I just find now younger fans are there even younger than I was when I started out that are listening to me, know my, the words to my songs. I'll see a 19 year old with her mom's vintage Terry Clark shirt on singing girls lie too in the front row. And she's, I'm like, how do you know this? 
So they're just, they're digging in and streaming helps. They, you know, it exposes them to more. They can just get it at the, at the touch of a, on the phone and they've got whatever song they want to hear. You've been very fortunate. You've had great songs that become anthems throughout country music and had the, you know, they've, they've stayed true and current throughout the times. And it's amazing. And the new stuff you put out has been fantastic. So let's talk about leading me into the new stuff, your favorite moment of country thunder and your duet with uh, our friend Dallas Smith. Dallas, uh, he's become like a brother to me. I just absolutely love the guy. You know, that duet came about, you know, it was a relationship-driven thing through our agent, Nick, and getting together with Dallas and talking and him coming to one of my shows. I did a solo acoustic tour across Canada in 2016. Just myself and By the way, all sold out. Yes, they all all sold sold out. out. It was awesome. And... Dallas came to one of those and came on the bus after and said, I'd love to sing something with you. And I said, well, I'm going to hold you to that. And he said, well, we just have to find the song. And the song came along. It was called One Drink Ago and his management slash publishing company had it. And uh, we ended up recording it and put it out as a single. So my favorite country thunder moment was when Dallas had been in Lloyd Minster the night before country thunder Calgary that I was is slated to be on the show. I think I went on at six or seven or something like that. And Dallas wasn't on the festival at all that weekend, but he flew in to pop up and do the duet for one drink ago with me right in the middle of my set. Nobody was expecting him to walk out. That was an awesome moment. It it was, that's magic, right? Everybody's like, Oh my God, Dallas Smith is here. What is he doing here? And, you know, in Dallas is, uh, you know, Elvis Presley in Canada <laughs> yeah. as a male. I mean, he's had great success. And, uh, you know, Dallas has become a really good friend. And, and ironically, you know, we do, the, he, he lives on my bus when he comes into town and we, uh, for, for do one of the country thunder. And that, that time he, he was there a day before. We didn't let you know that. And he flew in, spent a, spent a night before and we hung out and, you know, he's a true artist in his own right. And, uh, I love what Dallas brings to the table, you know, coming from, become from a rock thing to a country thing, mm-hmm. but it's all about music. And when you ask Dallas Smith to do something, it's like, yes. And, and it seems like, you know, within the, the music community, that's really an important yeah. thing to give back in certain yeah. areas. And, and both he, of you yeah. do that all the time. He's a great guy. And you know, like his career with default and coming from rock into country and having the kind of success he's had, the only other person I could think of in our genre that, has been able to so seamlessly do that as Darius Rucker. Like Dallas is kind of the Darius of Canada, like to go from like seriously. And it's just country hit after country hit. Not everybody's able to do that. So I have to commend him for, and you know, he's just got a really, really sharp business sense about him. And he's, he keeps his, he keeps his eye on everything. Yeah. He's very smart. Pam Tillis and Susie Boggess and myself are going out as the chicks with hits. And we, it's kind of a concept I came up with a few years ago and talked to, to my agent, Nick, who is sitting over in the corner there uh, about, and we love the idea of packaging up a strong female trio who could sing with each other, play on each other's songs, have, um, that had a banter on stage with chemistry that we could joke around and entertain the audience, not just with music, but, it has to be chemistry. You have to get along with somebody. And we had never worked together before. So we got together at, at someone at Susie's house actually. And 
had dinner and then we just got guitars out and started to sing and the three-part harmony just fell in so naturally and we sound like it's family harmony we sound like we're related to each other so is it everyone has their hits yep so everyone plays their hits so it's a hit filled 60 minutes of magic yeah, yeah it oh, is that's fantastic we have uh we're going to be able to see that in uh wisconsin country thunder wisconsin and country thunder arizona which we're very excited about. I mean, it's always been Terry Clark show. Yeah. And uh, this is great. I mean, I'm excited to see this. Well, it's a, it, it's, it's a great way to kind of branch out a, and add another spoke to the wheel. Yeah. Like I'll, I'll, I love doing my own shows with my band, but uh, you know, doing something like that and we've been doing it acoustic, but now we're going to start doing it with my band and uh, we're going to go out and do, you know, an electric version of the show and put something together. We've, we, we, we were getting ready to go into rehearsals to do that when COVID struck. So we haven't even, we haven't even scraped the surface of what the band show with chicks with hits is going to look like. But if it's anything like the acoustic show, I think it'll be great. Just, it'll be with, just with bass and drums and a little more energy. So we're looking forward to the it. Three amazing talents right there. Pam Tillis, Susie Boggess, and of course the fabulous Terry Clark. Oh, stop it. Hole in one. Wayne Gretzky hole in, is Hole named. in one, Terry. You should he, he responds to 99, and now Terry Clark responds to number one. Number hole one. one. <laughs> you must forever call me number one. I'm designating a new name. I always will. Hey, I would like to thank Terry Clark for being here uh, on the bus with myself and our friends. And uh, it's always a pleasure hanging out with you. And I, tr I just... I love our friendship and I uh, treasure it. And uh, what a blast today. Thank you very much. Well, I love our friendship too, Troy. And it's, I, I've really enjoyed getting to know you better over the past few years. And hopefully we'll have many more bus hangs, backstage, country thunders, fun, and this wonderful wine. What are we drinking? We're having a little Prisoner today. Sponsored oh. by Prisoner, Orange oh, Swift. It's, well, it's very, it's very good. Thank you very much for sharing. And it's good to be here. Thank you, Terry. Well, the bus is rolling to a stop. Thank you so much to our guests this weekend. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen. We'll see you next week. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com.